Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Sunday, May 9th, 2021, which is, of course, Mother's Day. So, Drew, we got to stop here to pay tribute to all the mothers out there, especially Sharon, head of Hoodlum House. Drew and I appreciate everything that moms do us, uh, as you should. Did you reach out to mom today? or I tried. She She did not write me back so i mean that shows you how much uh how much i mean to her jim but i'm sure i will talk to her later today i hope i'm kind of in the same wheelhouse i have my four siblings and multiple multiple grandchildren so i'm I'm headed down there i can actually go visit my mom without a mask for the first time in months but but again i gotta do it quickly because nancy's at home recovering from back surgery so it's ninja in ninja out fling the card like one of those six-sided stars like (laughs) and then go but since it's mother's day you're aware of amy meberson's pocket princesses thing right yes yes Amy Emerson, wonderful artist. Disney uses her all the time. In fact, I think it's it's over at this point, but McDonald's just had another one of those PR problems in that they were offering Star Wars toys and Disney Princess toys at the same time, and their employees kept doing the, do you want the girl toy or the boy toy? It's like, no, no, right. no. We don't live in that age anymore. You have to ask, do you want the Disney Princess or you don't want the Star Wars? But the Disney Princess toys were actually based on Amy's pocket princesses, based on her designs. Oh, that's so cool. I yeah. didn't know that. Amy, to date, has done 340 Pocket Princess cartoons, and they operate on the conceit that all of the Disney princesses live together in one house, and you get to see the conflicts and the compromises, and it's it's very sweet, very funny, but there's one in particular I I want you to, to Google, folks. It's Pocket Princesses 103, and it's one that Amy did for Mother's Day, I want to say, two years ago, three years ago. And, well, if you think about how many of the Disney princesses don't have moms, and what is it? It's Snow White, it's Cinderella, it's Ariel, Belle, Jasmine, and Pocahontas. So the image that Amy drew for the day is basically, it's Tiana, it's Merida, and Rapunzel have all asked their mothers to come to the house. And these these poor women are being hugged to death by the Disney princesses who don't have moms. So it's a really sweet image and you know, well worth checking out. Beyond that, I wanted to follow up on a story that, that Drew and I shared on the last show about the Far Side movie that Alan Rain- Rudolph was going to make. It turns out there is a little bit more info out there about this thing. Yeah, of course we fa- found this out after... Like five minutes after we recorded, right? We're sliding in an extra credit thing to try to to move the grade up, okay? (laughs) You know, but it turns out uh, there's a couple of interviews that Alan Rudolph did in the mid-80s? Yes, I think so. Okay, this was just as his film Trouble in Mind was arriving in theaters and people were asking about, okay, what's coming next? And it's like, well, you know, I'm friends with Gary Larson and I've been working on this far side script that I've been really enjoying making. And were you able to actually find it? No, no, not at all. All right. So we have, somebody did like a a paragraph review of of the thing and basically explained that the storyline starts in the Stone Age and then using individual Larson gags moves forward to the present day. And then the, 
the storyline kind of splits at that point, and one character goes off in the jungle in search of the mi- the missing link, and another one goes off. Uh, it is an astronaut goes off into space and somehow annoys aliens, and then the hilarity ensues. This was described as the project that, that he was going to work on after Trouble in Mind. Trouble in Mind gets released to theaters in December of 85. It cost $3 million to make. Its gross total ticket sales in the U.S. were only $19,623. So suddenly financial people weren't willing to take a, a risk on, on Alan Rudolph. And given that obviously Farsight is going to involve lots of costumes and makeups and special props and that sort of thing, it wasn't going to happen. So all we have is evidently this image that Dirk Blocker shared on Instagram of the early makeup tests, and that's as far as they got. So I guess we should get to the news, and a news portion of today's show is being brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Why don't we start with 22 versus Earth, the new Pixar shirt over Disney Plus? What'd you think? I, I thought it was great. I really wonder how long ago this thing was written, considering Josh Cooley wrote it, who hasn't been at the studio since like right after the Oscars in 2020. So that's kind of interesting. But I love that Kevin Nolting directed it. I thought it was very fun and smart. And yeah, what did you, what did you think? The thing that I enjoyed most about it is I got a closer look at the name tag mentor wall behind 22 and was finally able to oh, pick yes. some additional names. So uh, we got Aretha Frank- Franklin, we got Nelson Mandela, Muhammad Ali, Confucius, uh, Harvey Milk. I love that they had Richard Jenny up there. You know, he was, he was one of my favorite comics, but, but also Harriet Tubman. There's Grace O'Malley, who is a great figure from early Irish history. Like we, Lorenz, who was a warrior poet for the Apaches. It was also nice to see Joe Ramp in there. Yes. I remember seeing Joe's name. The very first, the very first footage that I saw from Seoul, I saw Joe's name and that it warmed my little heart, Jim. Now, speaking of warming your little heart, we got a bigger, beefier Luca trailer. What did you think of that? I just cannot wait to see this movie. It mm-hmm. just looks so lovely. And it mm-hmm. looks like such a fun summer movie. It does. Right? I mean, does. the art style, mm-hmm. the setting. I don't know. What did, what did you think? Even with uh, 22 versus Earth, I'm still having trouble. I mean, I admire Soul. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate what they tried to do. And it is amazing music. And I just worry that, the reason I didn't get behind this one the way I've gotten behind prior Pixar is I didn't see it in a theater. And I love so much of what I've seen with Luca. I, I sort of harboring the same fear. Is this, am I going to think lesser of this thing? Cause I don't see it on a screen that's a hundred feet wide. And, but I love what I've seen so far. It, it, it looks like a, a wonderful film and I really want to get behind it. Want to support it. Come out to LA, Jim, and we'll go to the El Cap because I'm oh. sure that it will be playing there. Okay. Okay. I'll get there. Uh, speaking of Disney okay. Plus stuff, uh, what did you think of the May the 4th thing that the folks at The Simpsons put out? The Force Awakens from its nap. It was pretty cute. It was a lot shorter than I thought it was going to be. But, mm-hmm. we, you know, we had such heavy hitters, you know, David Silverman directing mm-hmm. and all these great Simpsons producers and writers. And I mm-hmm. thought the, the animation was lovely. 
Silverman actually animated the BB-8 characters in that piece too, which I thought was really interesting. Did he really? Um, okay. Yes, and you know it's it's a, it's again built around Maggie, and I saw this hilarious interview with Al Jean, who said, mm-hmm. "Yeah, we we built it around Maggie because she doesn't talk. We don't have to pay anybody." <laughs> to be in the short. So I thought that was funny and honest. And I, of course, loved that there was a a Michael Graves reference in there. I thought that was great. There we go. Yes, the Team Disney Burbank building. Did you see the interview that Al Jean did with Variety where he talked about how, what, this thing got greenlit in January? Yeah. They rammed this thing out there. Also, Al Jean supposedly as part of this article, hinted that this is sort of a sequel to the short from 2012, The Longest Daycare. Don't they, at the, the start of it, actually, that Marge is going to stop at the the end, Ryan, school for tots, and, and Maggie's like, no! You know, and so that's how they end up at Jabba Hutt's pre, uh, Jedi preschool <laughs> with its door for Skywalkers and Sky Toddlers. But supposedly, according to Al, we will see more of these, and, and each of the, the ones that's in the works will pay tribute to a Disney franchise, so to speak. So I, I, he sort of hinted broadly that there's a Marvel one in the works. and I think the original press release that went out said that this is the first in a series of wow. synergistic okay. shorts. So. Mm. You know, good corporate players, Jim. You know, that's all I got to say. From day one, they've been that way. I mean, that lovely little thing that they did for an annual meeting, but all of the kids are being forced to be dressed in a a particular Disney IP. What was the thing before Onward, too? The Disney Welcomes the Simpsons thing? Was that, that wasn't the longest nap. What was that? Remember, it played theatrically in front of Onward. Oh, Now um, I can't even remember. That was the last movie I saw in a theater, Jim, so... Oh, was it another Maggie short? It was... Playdate with Destiny. There we go. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, as long as we're talking about subscription streaming services, I finally carved out the time, sat down and watched Mitchell's versus the Machines, and I liked it a lot. I really did. Was impressed by the overall look. For example, the early scenes set in the rundown suburban home. Really interesting art design that sort of nailed that look, nailed that feel. Earlier this past Thursday, FX was running Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse back-to-back. It started at 8 and then re-ran it again at 10.30. And so it was fascinating to have just watched Mitchell's versus the Machine and to watch how a lot of the art technique that they viewed in Spider-Verse then got improved upon or plussed going into Mitchell's versus the Machines. And loved a lot of the writing, loved the idea of how you defeat the robots as you wave a pug dog at them and they can't can't figure out if it's a, a dog, a pig, or a loaf of bread. But that's it. I, I have two minor quibbles. I would like to see in a film coming up a menace from the future not look like the Apple Store. Okay. That whole, okay, well, they're, all, they're all little cubicle, and you know the way you defeat humanity is, what well, you have free Wi-Fi. And it just, I don't know, if, for as well-written a film as it was, that seemed like low-hanging fruit. Yeah, but the bad guy was like an Apple type technology, though, he was. right? I mean, don't you think it it, apply, it applied pretty well to this story? Is all I'm gonna say. I get that. I get that. I guess my problem is I've just seen that a lot lately, and it's just sort of like, all right, can somebody else be the villain now? And speaking of something I've seen a lot, the whole 
dopey dad who doesn't know how to use technology. And and Drew, I'm I'm saying this right up front. I am a dopey dad, and I don't know how to use a lot of technology. I mean, I get it. It is from real life, but it but at the same time, I'm seeing this a lot. Right. That was why the mom and this thing stood out so well. When they're at the mall and they're being attacked by everything, and there's this wonderful conversation between the mom and the daughter, and it's like, you're really handling this this well. And she's like, honey, I'm, I'm a first grade teacher. This is like an average day to me. <laughs> then when mom becomes this warrior, and there's a wonderful moment where the son just sort of just came around, mom's scary now. They did interesting things with the mom. And don't get me wrong, I love the dad's arc overall. But it's just sort of like, don't be dad who can't use technology. It's like, can we put that one on the shelf for a while and find a, a new way in to the father figure? I like this challenge, Jim. I hope that people respond and mm. we get a new, a new challenge in future animated films. I know we've talked about this in the past, but it's that wonderful interview Brad Bird did talking about the difference from doing Incredibles in 2004 and then doing Incredibles 2 in, in 2018 and how he used the analogy of a, a playing field that was pretty worn at this point. There wasn't any, it wasn't a lot of new grass. Just looking yeah. for diff, different ways to do that. Speaking of which, Disney has begun, they brought back their wonderful world of Disney movie night. That's how they're filling out the schedule for May sweeps. And this past Monday, May 3rd, they, they did it, they aired Incredibles 2. They've got Finding Dory coming up on May 10th. And then Monsters Inc. on May 17th, Tangled on May 24th, and Princess and the Frog on May 31st. Remember when this had actual new movies, Jim? That wonderful world of Disney had new movies that they would show? I mean... I think you and I both know which piece of pipe that material is going down right now. (laughs) That brings us to the, the next new thing over at Disney+, Plus: The Bad Batch, which had an hour plus original episode and on may the 4th and then this past friday dropped the official second episode what'd you think i thought it was good i think the art style has been slightly updated they've kind Mm -hmm. of given the characters this kind of painted Mm -hmm. look which i was curious as to what you thought about that but i think it's kind of i mean there is a there is a problem where every when every character looks and sounds almost exactly the same, but you know, yeah. I thought it was it was fun. I'm a little bit over this art style, Jim. The son of Thunderbirds look, but you know, <laughs> there were some there were some cool things. That's that's a great way of describing it. Okay. <laughs> you remember how how Star Wars Rebels looked? And then Star Wars Resistance went with a different style, and now we have sort mm-hmm. of Star Wars Rebels 2.0, and and which makes sense given that basically these characters walked out of that show into their own show. Speaking of which, did you get at all that the Caleb Dune, the Padawan we saw at the beginning of the show, who made the heroic leap over the waterfall and escaped, how that's supposed to be Kanan Jarrus from Star Wars Rebels? You know, it sounded like Freddie Prince Jr. He had those very distinctive purple eyebrows from oh. Rebels. But I, I did have to Wikipedia Caleb Dune slash Kanan Jarrus to know that he changed his name. I, I didn't remember that part of it, Jim, but I, I thought I that do. was very cool. It was very cool, but at the same time, it just sort of like, I feel like I'm a bad Star Wars fan that I didn't know that from watching it initially. <laughs> Beyond that, uh, we had a trailer for our CG Rugrats reboot. What do we think about that? It looked 
good. I mean, I you know what I just watched last night was The Orange Years. Have you watched this yet, Jim? The no. documentary on Nickelodeon? No. It's oh. on Hulu, and it's about the kind of for- formative, you know, years of Nickelodeon. Really good stuff, Jim. I think you would get a kick out of it. But Did they talk about the female executive at Nick who virtually all of the shows that made that network were approved on her watch. Yes, they do. And they talk about how she left Nickelodeon for Disney um, at the end of her tenure. Yeah, she was, she's amazing. And she Mm -hmm. is highlighted, you know, Mm -hmm. she pretty much started this whole idea of having an entire channel for children. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think the Rugrats, I mean, it looks pretty good. I think that, you know, E.G. Daily. It sounds like a, ba- a baby is being voiced by a sixty-year-old woman. I'm not sure that is totally um, <laughs> successful, Jim. But uh, yeah, I think I'm I'm intrigued. I've been listening to a lot of Mickey Mouse recordings from the 1970s, where it was Jimmy McDonald and no disrespected E.G. Daily. But if you listen to Mickey Mouse during the 1970s, it is clear that you have several AARP members, you know, doing Mickey's voice. And it it, <laughs> it just does not work. Hey, kids, how are you? It's like, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> Evidently, uh, Wayne Alwyn, the guy who took over, the very first time he did Mickey's voice is for the intro of the 1977 redo of the Mickey Mouse Club, which died a quick death. But it's so clear that Wayne, at this point, is doing his impression of Jimmy McDonald's version of Mickey. So it's, you know, you, you got a 20 year old kid doing a 60 year old man's version of Mickey Mouse. And it's, oh, it's awful. But again, Wayne got better at it. He got a lot better at it. But again, we'll talk about some of that stuff in the second half of the show. Closing out the news here, we got the Becoming Cruella feature. Have you warned to this one yet, Cruella? Are you excited to see this yet? Or? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm all in, Jim. I, I am a big fan of uh, the director, Craig Gillespie, for mm-hmm. making three movies for Disney that nobody saw. Fright Night million dollar arm in the finest hours so i'm i hope that he gets to see he gets a movie that that people will actually watch i'm excited about that prospect i think it looks great i like the kind of like late 70s setting yeah I, i'm all in on on corella jim i'm i'm there you just sealed the deal for me there because it was one of these things million dollar arm really really enjoyed and the finest hours did i ever tell you about how Alice and I, on a brutally cold January day, actually drove down to the Cape and went down to where the actual teeny tiny little Coast Guard boat that the whole storyline of The Finest Hours is built around was docked. When you saw the real thing and saw that it was only like 20 feet long and six feet wide. It was a great movie. Great use of 3D, too, if you if you got to see it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in fact, also shot in the the Boston area at the Naval Yards, I want to say, uh, in Weymouth. Yeah. Well, as long as we're talking about real estate-related things, explain to me this DreamWorks campus sale, which virtually every headline talked about how this is the fourth time that the DreamWorks campus has been sold since 2015. Yeah, I had no. I, did you ever know about this, Jim? Because I had never heard about this. I remember the first time it got sold. And again, it's a seven building, 500,000 square feet. And evidently this was after the sale to Comcast. Okay. And Comcast trying to be creative with the financing. 
The deal was they were selling off the property, but the studio had a lease on the property through 2035. Whoever was buying the property understood they couldn't really do anything with it for 20 years. The property then changed hands multiple times right up until it got listed again this past week. Yeah, and, and every time they listed, it's like 50 million more than what it was was bought for like a few years earlier. I mean, it's crazy. All right, so right next door to DreamWorks Animation is where the ARL is, right? Disney's Animation Research Library. Yes. Then right across the way, the Media Campus and Consumer Products is there, and Imagineering is there. And is it just up the street where KABC is? or It's actually on the same side of the street as mm. DreamWorks is. That's where Circle 7 was. That's mm-hmm. where the local ABC station is. So, yeah, I could see it going into Disney's hand. I mean, Jim, you visited me at work. You know that we did not have a uh, waterfall and a faux Tuscan. No, uh, no, aesthetic. no. I genuinely enjoyed whenever the folks at DreamWorks would in- invite me to screenings or to do press days of that sort of thing. Because, so, again, it was a beautiful campus. And yeah. it would be sad to see it get turned down and turned into something. But again, we're talking 2035, and after this year in animation, with you know, again, if you think about how much work for Rhea and the Last Dragon, or for that matter, Mitchell's versus the Machines was done at home. The other thing, Jim, that I was thinking about was, you know, that Kung Fu Panda ride at Universal Studios Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's built like this campus. Have you been on that ride yet? Like the whole facade is this oh. DreamWorks campus in Glendale. It's really interesting. I think it's Universal Hollywood just announcing that they were getting, finally getting ready to reopen that attraction this past weekend. So that's very, very cool. But again, I think you're correct. I think that it's entirely possible if we, we jump ahead some 14 years or so that you know this will wind up in the hands of Disney. But at the same time, how will Disney be making animated films at that point? Well, you and I both heard the rumors, too, that they were just going to move everything to the, what do they call it, the Black Tower, uh, <laughs> the uni- the big universal uh, building. There you go. Yes. All right. We'll have to keep an eye on that story. But And, and again, we tease a little bit about what we'll be talking about in the second half of the show involving a certain mouse. And uh, But we'll be back with that story in just a moment after these ads. Drew and I have uh, both have a particular fondness for Wander Over Yonder, uh, Craig McCracken's amazing show for Disney. And we only got the two seasons. It ran from August of 2013 and basically shut down in June of 2016. But I love this show. Everything about it, the design, the amazing vocal cast. I mean, what, Jack McBrayer is Wander, April Winchell is, is uh, Sylvia, Keith Ferguson is Lord Hader, and, and especially Tom Kenny. As as Commander Peepers, I, you know, it was, <laughs> it, it was amazing in that role. But yeah, I missed it. And so it's nice to have it show up as as now all of the episodes in one place at Disney Plus. So I can indulge. They've sort of been they've sort of been dropping those like weird Disney Channel shows, sort of like mm-hmm. once a month. Like Future Worm was on, and then Pick, uh, Pickle and Peanut, and now this. Which, by the way, have we talked about how the, how Disney Channel has been been rebranded to Disney branded TV or something? That whole group has been, no, yeah, really? okay. yeah. I keep 
trying to teach myself. I, whenever I will be writing something, I'll write the Disney Channel. I'll go wait a minute, no, there's none of the. Go back at the at Disney Channel, and now now seriously, it's Disney branded television. Yeah, that's what they're. That's what that group is called now. So I don't know what the hell that really means, but it's okay. really gross and corporate and off-putting. So all right, largely I agree with you. That said, just this past weekend, Disney was doing its halfway to Halloween promotional event, and they dropped the title sequence to the ghost and Molly McGee. And I, I'm just going to warn you up front, folks, avoid this at all costs, because if you watch it once, this earworm of a theme song will live in your head as it is. It's been living in my head as the whole music, you know, <laughs> will be out doing shopping or folding laundry the song just plays endlessly in my head and and also great animation i can't wait to see dana snyder as scratch but sadly we have to wait till october till the show actually you know finally shows up on disney branded television i I know i can't wait it looks so good it does we haven't had like an original i feel like owl house and amphibia were the last time we had like some good original Disney Channel shows, and I just can't wait to see it. By the way, have we talked yet about the whole Amphibia season two finale debacle? I wish I could, Jim. I cannot talk about it. Really? (laughs) Yeah, but you can talk. You talk about it, and I will sit here quietly and listen to you. Okay. But, But please explain it to people. All right. Well, supposedly the finale for the second season was scheduled. And then suddenly got pulled at the last minute. And, and the story, I guess there was some sort of a production issue or something like that. But the show had been set up to be available through the iTunes store. And it was. So all of these kids who were so looking forward to the season two finale of Amphibia didn't get to see it. Unless, of course, they went over to the iTunes store and bought it. And suddenly all of these scenes and all these spoilers were showing up online and people kind of lost their mind because they'd been invested in the second season of the show. And now, evidently, I guess the latest I heard is it's not rescheduled yet for the American version of Disney Channel, but evidently the season two finale now has a release date for Disney Channel Canada. I'm reading this book about Disney synergy right now that talks about how in the 1980s, before we had texting, before we had instant messaging, people would send memos back and forth and make sure to lock in schedules months in advance. And it's like, there's just something about what happened here. I will say that you're, you're getting the, you're getting the broad strokes, right? I mean, did you also see that all the voice actors were like, doing these little voice memos in character to, to try to persuade people to not watch the leaked version. Oh, no. uh, it's very cute. It's on Twitter. Uh, mm. If you look at Matt Braley's um, mm. Twitter, he's been sharing this stuff. But I think that it, it was pulled from iTunes and other stores. It was. It was eventually. Right. This is not somebody dropping the ball. This is like somebody dropping an entire gymnasium. Well, it was also so heartbreaking because season three is so serial or this season, season two, I'm sorry, was so serialized and it was so every single episode moved into every single other episode. And so it was just very disappointing that I don't know what happened exactly, but that they couldn't air it on time. And this is what happens. I mean, I guess if you make a decision because they announced that it wasn't going to be on air, like I had already Mm -hmm. set my DVR. You know, like I had 
it was going to show up. And then like a few days before it was like, nope. Yeah, it was very it was very disappointing. But it hopefully it'll make when we finally get to watch it that much better, Jim. And I can't wait to for that to happen so we can talk about it, too, because I I don't know about how you feel, Jim, but I absolutely adore this show. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I've been a fan since, jeez, uh, I remember dating Disney Anna when Bill Farmer, you know, was asking, okay, so, you know, it's, you know, every five minutes Disney is calling you to do Goofy, and it's like, so there's something else you're working on now? It's, oh, yeah, there's this great new show I'm doing called Amphibia, and, you know, I can't wait for people to get to see it. He is so funny, too, yeah. on the show. Like, he is so funny. Yeah. I love Bill Farmer on the show. He's also a very sweet guy in real life. Yes, so, he is so. a wonderful man. All right, I think at this point, we are now cut up news-wise, so let's talk about this week's feature and what you want to talk about. So what I said was, Jim, I want you to tell me the story of my favorite in-park Mickey Mouse. I was just talking to Brooke McDonald, uh, you know, one of our favorite travel writers, um, about this and how he he is my favorite. And so I said, Jim, tell me the story. So I'm going to be hearing the story for the first time. I'm going to be interjecting as Jim tells the story to ask questions. But Jim is now going to regale us with the story of where Mickey in the spacesuit with the rainbow patch came from. So, Jim, the floor is yours. I've been spending a lot of time on YouTube. In fact, I was watching the Danny Kay special, the Epcot Center opening thing. Yeah. If you jump into this 49-minute long broadcast at 33 minutes, you then get to see the Citizens of World Showcase. you got to remember, the Imagineers are working on Epcot in 77, 78. And as they're locking in the design and the look of Epcot, 1978 is the year that the Disney company celebrated Mickey Mouse's 50th anniversary. And in fact, I came across this crazy interview in researching the show where it's John Hench talking about painting Mickey Mouse's official 50th anniversary portrait. I love John Hench. I'm going to say not the best Mickey portrait artist. He got that job because in 1953, for Mickey's 25th anniversary, he was the one that Walt tapped to do the painting. So this is the one where it's Mickey in his red shorts, but he's in sort of this lush office leaning against a bookcase and like there's awards behind him and all that. Yes. Uh, so it's 25 years later and Walt's gone. And it's like, well, who did the first one? Well, that was John. Okay, John, you need to do Mickey's portrait. But again, Mickey has changed in the past 25 years. He's now a you know, goodwill ambassador for the world. And he's, he's now the official Disney corporate symbol. And so this is this amazing interview where John is talking about how, how do we show Mickey at 50? And it was one of these things where one of the ideas was that it's Mickey on the golf course at Walt Disney World. And you can see like the castle in the distance and Mickey's just taking a golf swing. And one of the reasons John picked the setting initially was it would allow him to keep Mickey in his shorts because he's a 50-year-old man. He should be wearing long pants at this point. <laughs> the whole notion is like, well, what is the message? If Mickey's playing golf in Florida, Mickey's retired. All right. And it's like, no, you know, Mickey's active. He's a big part of the company. So it's like, then then there was this idea that when you saw Mickey for his 50th anniversary portrait, he'd be in astronaut Gordon Cooper. He was, uh, you know, he got hired to help them with building Epcot. And so it's Mickey in Gordon Cooper's office, but he's looking at the map 
for World Showcase, and he's literally got like the pen out where he's marking locations for where the, the pavilions are going to go. And But in the end, we end up with this image of Mickey standing in front of the model, which, by the way, that's the model that if you were in New York and you were at the UN and Disney was trying to get you to sign a contract to bring your country to, to Epcot, this is the actual model that was in Disney's uh, offices on Fifth Avenue. We want Mickey posed in front of that because that's the company's future. And Mickey isn't retired. He's active. In fact, that's the whole, there's so much John goes into this interview. We talked about how if you look at it, there's a director's chair with Mickey's name on it, which means, again, he's not visiting. He works here. And if you look in his chair, there's actually blueprints for Epcot, which means he's just taking a moment out for a second to pose for this thing before he gets back to work on Epcot. But during this same period where they're putting so much thought into Mickey must pose in front of the Epcot model, here are the Imagineers being told, oh, by the way, when it comes to Epcot, no Disney characters. And it's like, what? We want a distinct identity for Epcot as opposed to the Magic Kingdom. And the Magic Kingdom already has Mickey, Donald, Goofy, and, and the 31 other characters that live and work at the kingdom. And so when it comes to Epcot, this is our adult park. This is where you go for fine dining. This is where we're going to be sharing complex ideas and we don't want our cartoon characters there. The Imagineers are looking at what their marching orders are and they're looking at this official Mickey portrait and it's like, Jesus, this is bullshit. So what they decide to do is this is where the hidden Mickey comes from. This is okay. our first hidden Mickey shows up in Epcot. And by the way, I want to give credit to my friend Arlen Miller, who created the phrase hidden Mickey and pay tribute to Steve Barrett, who's still out there cataloging all of the hidden Mickeys for his books. But this is where they begin slipping the Mickeys into various attractions. And the Imagineers still understand that people are expect I'm going to a Disney park. They're going to have characters. And sure enough, you know, they, they knew, all right, well, Future World, we should definitely get some characters in there. And so we did get Dreamfinder, we did get Figment, but remember, that attraction didn't open until March of 83. So the first six months of the South Park opening, there are no characters. The only character in all of Future World was Smart One. Yes. Getting back to the Danny Kaye special. Disney tries to put one over on the audience because it's one of these things where it's, oh, of course there are characters in the future world. So, for example, at one point, it's Danny and Drew Barrymore. Yep. And then this robot that's coming rolling toward them, his name is Seiko. It's the robot from Rocky Four, right? Yes. Thank you. All right. Disney rented it for this TV special. I actually found a footage of that robot at like a nightclub in like oh, Milwaukee or something. Oh. I, I'll send it to you, Jim. But what about the other f early Epcot characters, which were, and I know I'm getting off topic, but the yes. the nerdy tourists? Uh, Entertainment 101. They did this again when they opened uh, first summer of Disney MGM. That you had all these people standing in line in the Florida sun and what entertainment would do, you know, realizing that, you know, here are these people trapped and 
This is also during the era when the attractions would not necessarily work the way they were supposed to, and suddenly had to dump a whole line of people, or or you you know we paused loading for the next half hour. Did I say half hour? I meant to. And you need to understand these people on because otherwise they're going to get out of line. They're going to go over to guest religion. They're going to complain, and then you have to start handing out free tickets and free meals and that sort of thing. And Disney didn't want to do that, so they invent this Entertainment 101 group, and basically what it was. When an attraction is 101, it's down. So the notion is it's an emergency situation. So for to call these people Entertainment 101, the notion is we need entertainment stat for an angry group of people. And so they just had this group of folks who would dress as nerdy tourists who would insert themselves in the middle of a group and start being loud and ridiculous. And gradually over time, a group of people would form around the loud, crazy tourists and eventually realize oh, they're Disney people, and oh, they're entertaining us. And it's like, okay. But they had you know, a team of actors who were just sort of sitting backstage in the air conditioning, and it's like, okay, the land pavilion just went down. Get over there, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and start being nerdy. But yeah, they just, ugh. I mean, Epcot particularly, that first six months ago, it, it had problems. And because they, they ran so far behind schedule and they went so far over budget, they actually held a competition in Imagineering to the effect of, we need walk-around characters for Future World. And it was Chris Carradine, the gentleman who eventually designed uh, Pleasure Island for uh, the parks, who came up with these kind of robot-type characters. But the idea is that that you had a cast member in the suit, but it was a big rounded suit. So they could be, you know, here, I beep, beep, I'm a robot from the future. Nice to meet you. But again, they were designed, but they ran out of money and they ran out of time and they never built them. We haven't talked about World Showcase yet and, and what they decided to do because that place needed characters as well. And so you've seen footage of America on Parade, right? Um, yes, it haunts my dreams uh, <laughs> and nightmares alike, Jim. As it should. Ridiculous ambitious. This was what Disney was going to do to celebrate America's bicentennial. So 50 parade units, 150 characters. Parade took a half hour to roll by you. That's how big it was. But it ends its run in September of 77. And they had built two full units of this parade. So there's an American parade that would run in Anaheim. There was an American parade that would run at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. When this ends, there are 300 of those eight-foot-tall, doll-faced walk-around figures that just go into storage because it's like, well, what are we going to do with these things? And someone in Imagineering, as they're in the teeth of Epcot, and they look down the, the line and it's just sort of like the park opens next year. We don't have any characters. And it's like, well, what about all those American Parade figures? I mean, we were trying to be thoughtful. So there are clearly characters that are Hispanic. There are clearly characters that are African-American. If we change the costuming, we could have cast members in those eight foot tall outfits walking around World Showcase. And so to circle back to where we started, if you go to 33 minutes in, to that Danny K. Epcot Center grand opening special. Drew, it's horrifying. There have to be 50 or 60 of these things involved in a giant production number, and they loom up over everybody else in this thing. Just sort of like, wow, our, our robot oppressors have finally arrived. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but I just found a picture of the GoBots, Jim. Uh, Chris Did you? Runko's. Oh, uh, good. They're so cute, Jim. They're so cute. No, they're amazing. They're little rounded, you know, I mean, yeah. well, they would have been huge rounded, but. They call them huggable. <laughs> yeah. So they're huggable what? robots. Long before Baymax, Jim. This is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. So park opens October of 1982. Everyone got what Disney was trying to do. Characters live at the Magic Kingdom. This is your adult park. Didn't matter. You had parents marching into guest relations going, where are the characters? You know, and it's just sort of, my kids are here and they're bored to death. And it's like, where's Mickey? Where's Goofy? Where's somebody? And it's like, well, you know, you come back in March, we'll have Dreamfinder and Figment. But if you, you want to go over and hug a giant Mexican person, <laughs> head right over to World Showcase. And it's just sort of like, oh. And the Imagineers dug in their heels. They were getting these these reports from guests. The fact that people want the characters in Epcot. And it's like, well, no, the characters live in the Magic Kingdom. We're in Ghostbusters country at this point, Drew. That's a, we can't cross the streams, all right? <laughs> Epcot has to be Epcot, and the Magic Kingdom has to be in the Magic Kingdom. And in a lot of ways, this is what contributes to what happens in 83, which is after the initial rush of people who go to Epcot, suddenly attendance levels tank. And this in turn causes, you know, when Disney has to report this to the financial press, the Disney stock price tanks, and this is in turn where we see Erwin Jacobs and Saul Steinberg make their green mail runs at the company. September 22nd, 1984, this is where Michael Eisner gets installed as the new chairman and CEO of Walt Disney Productions, and Frank Wells then comes in as president and chief operating officer. These guys at this point are in a very leaky boat trying to plug as many holes as they can. And I want to talk about something you've been doing on Twitter the past week or so. Where you've been talking up, you know, a lot of the Disney movies of the 80s and the 90s. Yes. Yeah. The Forgotten Touchstone and Hollywood oh, Pictures movies. I've so been enjoying that because, again, yes. this, it's from the era of Michael Eisner. Basically, well, will they go for this? what about this you know i'm just throwing anything against the wall to see what sticks you know the the fact what 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 do people consider a disney movie or what do they consider a touchstone film or a hollywood pictures and i love that you have been kind of across the board just sort of like deceived deceived Um, yeah which with goldie hahn puppet mm -hmm. masters yes yes you know um, these are good movies i mean some of them are hard to find a little Mm -hmm. bit nowadays but I think it's worth putting out there. I, I don't know. I think I'm going to do it a movie a day as long as I can. So, uh, yeah. Well, no, there is so much stuff. Yes, I mean, yes. Turner Classic is doing their film festival right now, and they yes. just did their interview with Martin Short. And where does Three Fugitives fit into the whole? Uh, let me see where Three Fugitives. Did you see that? I was going to tell you, Jim, that he he misidentified Prince of Egypt as a Disney movie. Did you uh, catch that? Well, you got to remember, during that period of time, he was, you know, it's like, hey, if Robin falls out, we, we want to talk to you about Aladdin. Uh, you know, in fact, if you think about the uh, only murders in this building that uh, the series he's doing with Steve Martin, and I love the fact that they were paired as voices in Prince of Egypt, but yeah. They were actually, the two of them, Steve Martin and Martin Short, were the fallback if Robin Williams said no to the genie. Martin Short, probably the most annoying part of <laughs> Treasure Planet. I will say that. Oh, okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to fight you on that one. 
all right. So again, you're at guest relations, you're getting all these letters and they get, you know, Michael Isaac comes through the door and they read everything. And, and it's like, well, what's the deal with people complaining about the characters in Walt Disney World? Well, the characters live in the Magic Kingdom and they don't live in Epcot. It's like, they're paying customers. They want the characters, put them in there. So for the very first test, which was done over the Thanksgiving weekend of 1984, it was first just World Showcase. And they did things like, what's the easiest costume to put on a character? And it was like they put Chip and Dale in like a Chinese coolie hat. And I'm using the wrong term. Yes, but it's I remember that. Brightly colored jacket. But it was like, it's easy to, this one's easy to do. Let's do this. And they also had from one of many's Mickey wardrobe. I mean, of the 150 outfits they had for Mickey, they had a Mickey as Uncle Sam. And so put him out in World Showcase. And then it was just sort of, there was such a huge response. It's like, okay. And they, they literally began stripping outfits off of the retooled citizens of the America on Parade. I want to say the, the Scotsman outfit, the kilt and all that that Goofy War was actually pulled off of the figure that created for the UK. And so by Christmas of 84, they have all these things set up for World Showcase, but nothing in Future World yet. And the pressure's on at this point. And in fact, kind of a half step to get them there when people go, well, where, where are the characters in Future World? And it's like, have you seen our comic book? The Goofy and Mickey Explore the Universe of Energy comic book was actually part of this put the characters in Future World ever. What ends up happening is there is this huge pressure now on the folks working at Epcot to the effect of, okay, we got the characters in World Chokers. We need the characters in Future World. And what have you got for designs? And, okay, now remember the part of the story where we talked about how the Imagineers were upset that they were told you couldn't put the characters in Epcot, and so that's how they created the Hidden Mickey? We're now going to talk about the rainbow on Mickey's outfit. So the very first time the rainbow was associated with gay pride was in June of 1978. Same period of getting the Imagineers upset. And if you look at the workforce at the Walt Disney Company, you're going to find a very large number of the LGP community and very talented, wonderful people. This is late 70s, early 80s, and not as many people out of the closet as they might be. But at the same time, right. here comes this rush order. To, we need costumes for the Disney characters for Future World. And some unga- engaging Imagineer in league with the costuming department at Epcot, it's like, all right, so it's the future. So let's put them in kind of a silver spandex. And, but it needs a symbol in the front. It need, you know, I mean, it just, it just looks bland. And the thing is, they wanted to make it different from the Mickey astronaut outfit, which had been made. Back in 75, in fact, if you you Google Spaceship Earth opening Walt Disney World, you can see both the Goofy and the Mickey Space Band outfit. Is that different than the the one from the 60s, which looked, which with the giant fishbowl around Mickey that looked like the guy inside was probably slowly dying um, in the heat? <laughs> Actually, you're very much on the money. In fact, what's so funny okay. is that they actually tried to make the astronaut outfit look more like the real outfit that was used for the Apollo landings, the space shuttle. So it's, it's kind of a generic gray, you know, that, that sort of thing. 
Whereas when they started doing the Future World outfits, they actually referenced the 1950s Spaceman outfit uh, for the walk-around character for Tomorrowland at Disneyland. Because it, it had a stylization that they were like, you know, oh, that's fun. And in a weird sort of way, that'll work for the characters. And so they actually pulled the old Patton and had that shipped off to Walt Disney World. But again, just it's coming down to, all right, so we do the, you know, we do this in silver fabric and we create an outfit like this with, you know, again, it's at the 80s, so it's got to have shoulder pads. But then it's like, mm-hmm. what's on his chest? Is there a symbol for your future world? And we're doing Mickey, Donald, Goofy. You know, the, why don't we put a rainbow on there? Because the rainbow is universal. The rainbow, you know, the, the, who could be offended by a rainbow? And so that's how we ended up with the Mickey rainbow future world costume with only certain members of the Disney staff understanding why it was that Mickey had the rainbow at that point. And I wish we could talk about the Disney company being a progressive during that period, but it was only after Disney bought ABC Cap Cities and they had some incredibly progressive uh, policies for the period for lesbian employees, gay employees, trans employees, and the like. And Disney actually used the fact that they were buying ABC and just saying, look, you know, we, we bought this company that has these policies in place. So we're going to embrace these as part of the Walt Disney Company today. So it was you know, kind of after the fact and only because of the ABC sale that, you know, you got the Disney Company that you got today, which really delighted me about you wanting to do this story, Drew, was just in the past week, two weeks where we saw all that that merch that had been created for a gay pride, which again, had had the rainbow all over it. Yeah, and the trans rainbow and the trans flag and all. It was pretty pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. But but, but again, it all comes on the back of Michael Eisner. It's like, we, we have to have those characters in Future World tomorrow. The only part of this story I haven't been able to pin down that they did the test of the the characters going into Future World for Thanksgiving and by Christmas of 84, they definitely had them out there. So I'm trying to pin down when exactly in 85 they first brought started bringing the characters out for Future World. I mean, what's so funny is... You can see this costume over and over again, because when they did the opening of Captain EO in September of 86, it's that version of Mickey who appeared not only in Future World when they opened it uh, at the Imagination Pavilion, but also at Disneyland. Didn't he come back for a start for a start? He did. January of 87. There's Mickey and Minnie in their Future World outfits. But again, there's Mickey front and center with with his rainbow on for no particular reason. (laughs) Nothing to see here. (laughs) Only a few people are going to get what's really going on here. So here's my question for you, Jim. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this rainbow inspired at all the Captain EO costume and the rainbow on his chest? You know, do you remember that? The I kind do, of I do. He opens rainbow. his yeah. shirt. Yeah. Yes. You know, Mister Rody no longer works for the Walt Disney Company. <laughs> and you know, Joe yes, was but he's right. too busy building spaceships now. I I know. Us, I but. know. Oh, but it's always interesting when somebody works for Disney and toes the line for years and years, and then they leave the company and you get so much better stories. So 
We should ask. Yes. We should reach out to Joe and see if he'd he'd be willing to talk about that. Because again, he did a lot of the the character design work, and you know, if anybody's yeah. going to have some info about you know the significance of that rainbow, we got to find out about that. Well, here's my other question: Were, were they still pretty relatively sparse? Because I think the first time I went was in '86. I was only three, but my recollection was the main way you could see the characters was through merchandise. And mm-hmm. this and this version was heavily reproduced as toys and whatnot, it was, correct? It was, it was. Now, but okay. remember, okay, now if you went 86, you, you say? I think that was the first time I went, yeah, 86. Okay, now I want to say starting in 86, Eisner at this point was, whatever is going to get people into Epcot. And so this is where, you know, you began to see things like that Epcot Space Circus Spectacular. From the character point of view, it's like, well, you know, now they're in a circus, you know, so we can change Mickey's costume. And so that's where you, you <laughs> you know, you got Mickey in the top hat and the spangly red shirt and you got Minnie dressed as an aerialist and, and I want to say Goofy as a strongman or, you know, that sort of thing. So they had different reasons now to bring in different versions of the characters, but they were creating reasons left and right to shoehorn the characters into the park. And and let's not forget in the same window of time, because they were so desperate to do this, this is where they began talking about building that entertainment building that was supposed to be between imagination and the land and how that just grew and grew and grew and eventually became a Disney MGM. So, which of course, you know, I mean, you know, they were front and center about the characters. I mean, you know, the hell, the, you know, that was the park that was built around a hidden Mickey, right? I mean, you know, the whole Echo Lake ear and, you know, the smile. I was love a, that stuff. I love it too. I love it too. But it, it's a fascinating look at the company from the Ron Miller days. One of the reasons that John Hench did Mickey golfing was Ron Miller. I mean, Ron Miller was famous for, you know, he'd he'd show up in the morning, he'd do his time, and then at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I mean, the guys in the animation building at 2 o'clock could turn like clockwork, and here's Ron Miller walking out the door with his golf clubs, you know, because he's he's put in a full day. It's been four hours, you know, and it's it's like, okay, you know, (laughs) I've greenlit production of Herbie Goes Bananas. It's time to get in 18 holes. But, you know, the notion was, well, we'll do Mickey golfing. Ron's going to love that, so. Well, thank you, Jim, for giving us that history. I wanted to know, and now I know. So, yeah, yeah. thank you very much. And happy to do it. And speaking of stuff that I, I'm happy to do, I'm gonna, it always gives me so much joy to sit down and listen to Light the Fuse, your Mission Impossible oh, podcast. What do we make of our, our image of Tom on the train this week? I mean, besides just looking gorgeous as ever on mm-hmm. that train, just what a handsome fella. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, th- these are the first promotional images for for Mission Impossible 7, so I am very, very excited about uh, reading this article and learning a little bit more, but, um, you know, we have got some really great episodes coming up, Jim, so um, I can't say who exactly, but we have we have dynamited one of our, the heads off of our Mount Rushmore, Jim, and we are... We are so thrilled because it was it was a lot of fun and I I can't wait for everybody to hear it. So that's all I'll tease right now. But please check check back. Yeah. 
If you've listened to the most recent Lights, Views, and Looking for Sad This Stuff to Do, we do have some other podcasts here. We got Disney Dish with Len Testa. We got Marvel Us Disney, the Marvel News podcast they do with Aaron and Adams. We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse and work on a new one of those. We should have that out shortly. I'll tell you what, folks, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Bandcamp and, and subscribe, that would be helpful. If you're looking for Jim Hill Media on Twitter and Instagram, again, that's just plain old Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. And that's going to do it for now, folks. So thank you so much for listening and we'll talk soon.